Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. 2020 has been a headline year, dominated by news of a global pandemic, U.S. elections, Brexit, and China's rise to power. On the business front, corporate purpose has emerged as the theme of the year. It comes on the back of an August 2019 statement released by the U.S.-based Business Roundtable, calling into question the primacy of shareholders. For the past 50 years, corporations have operated on the principle that the only responsibility of business is to generate profits for its shareholders. With the world in such a muddle, that core idea is coming into question. If issues like climate change, inequality, and social injustice aren't addressed, there's growing concern that societies everywhere will come face-to-face with collapse. Corporations, so say pundits, are best positioned to make a difference. Helping companies make that shift so that purpose and profit might coexist is the work of my two guests this episode. Robert Quinn and Anjan Thakkar are U.S.-based professors. Together, they wrote a book entitled The Economics of Higher Purpose, Eight Counterintuitive Steps for Creating a Purpose-Driven Organization. I spoke with them by phone recently. We touched on the traditional employer-employee contract, the new operating paradigm, and what it takes to bring a purpose agenda to life. Anjan Thakur and Robert Quinn, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Today, we're going to have a conversation around corporate purpose. And in order to do that, I was hoping that uh, perhaps, Anjan, you could begin with telling us a little bit about the so-called principal-agent model. Can you explain in a traditional sense the nature of that model? And then uh, we'll we'll go from there. All right, sure. So the principal-agent model is a model that was developed in the 1970s in the academic literature and economics to explain relationships between employers and employees within firms. And a fundamental assumption in that model is that employees are effort averse, which means that they have a distaste for working harder. And so you have to provide incentives for them to work harder. And the incentives are typically in two forms. One is uh, direct supervision, monitoring, control by the employer. And the other is financial incentives. And then this theme was picked up in the mid to late 1970s in a famous paper by Jensen and Meckling in which they extended the framework to look at a host of financial policy decision uh, issues. But essentially, all of these theories and the empirical work that's uh, been done in economics and finance since then have focused on the importance of providing financial incentives and the importance of monitoring employees for aligning their behavior with what the firm would like them to do. And so, for example, we have this extensive literature on extensive research on the role of stock options for example, to motivate CEOs to act in the best interests of shareholders and uh, the role of uh, bonus schemes for lower-level employees to make sure that they work hard to exceed the targets that the firm sets for them. So that's been sort of the fundamental tenet of the principal agent model that absent explicit incentives, the interests of employees will not be aligned with the interests of the firm. There'll be a divergence and that this divergence has to be reduced or diminished through financial incentives, supervision incentives, 
monitoring, promotions, and those sorts of things. And for a while, did that hold true or has it changed? Well, I think it's still true. I mean, I think one of the most powerful insights of economics is that incentives do work. <laughs> and sometimes they work too well, right? So you can provide incentives to someone to increase sales. And they might respond so powerfully to those incentives that they might cheat or they might do things that are illegal or unethical in order to achieve that increase in sales. So the point of the research that Bob and I have done is not to deny the power of incentives, but to recognize that there are limits that even economic theory uh, and research recognize that there are limits to the power of incentives and that in providing incentives for people to work harder, we sometimes also provide them with incentives to not do the right thing. And so the whole idea of purpose is not to replace incentives, but to complement them in a positive way. Was this something perpetuated by a crisis, for instance, the 2008 global financial crisis, or is it just evolutionary where you determined that certain companies were starting to stall or there was a need to shift the management techniques in order to get the best out of people? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it's both. I think that there was a growing recognition that we needed to do more than just provide financial incentives and directly monitor employees in order to align their interests with those of the firm and society in general. But I think the 07-09 financial crisis basically uh, brought that point home more forcefully because bank regulators, both here and in Europe, began to talk about the role of culture and, and, and some of the softer aspects of governance and banking as uh, having contributed to some of the behaviors that may have exacerbated the crisis, not caused it, but made things worse. And so since then, I think there's been an increasing recognition that we do need to think about what motivates people to behave in certain ways within firms, within banks, and, and think about ways of positively influencing that. Because the, the culture of the organization or the purpose that it adopts uh, shapes the identities or the mental maps that people within the organization have of themselves. So I'm working in an organization that has a particular culture, has a particular set of values that it practices. It actually influences the way that I think of myself, my own identity. And so it influences my behavior in a powerful way that goes beyond just the incentive contracts that motivate me to work harder. I have a sense that uh, at a point in time, we had this within the corporation. In the 40s and 50s, and maybe even into the 60s, there was this feeling that once you signed up, you were in for life, part of the family. Um, there are all kinds of incentives beyond formal, even informal, that gave people reason to stick with that organization for 30, 40 years, retire with the gold watch. Uh, is this a rediscovery of what was originally there, or is something about this wave of corporate purpose different? I think it is a rediscovery. So I think we've gone, if you think about the 20th century and the history of uh, corporations, 
and think, you know, specifically about the United States, but I think this is true of all countries. As we went through the Industrial Revolution, we had, you know, pre and post World War II enormous breakthroughs in different technologies and the way that we made and, and sold things. And, and that was an enormous burst of entrepreneurial innovation in many, many industries. And I think at that time, a lot of these entrepreneurs, uh, you know, Andrew Carnegie, you know, Ford, all of these people, if you watch, you know, if you read about the history of these people, they were all inspired by something more than just making money. They all had a purpose in mind, right? Whether you agreed with that purpose or not, they had a higher purpose that motivated them to do all these spectacular things. And then I think we went through this period of enormous wealth generation in the 50s and 60s as a result of that. And I think in the 70s and the early part of the 80s, we had a lot of inefficiencies built up because we'd done so well that we didn't need to be efficient. And so in the 80s and the 90s, we had leveraged buyouts and all of the restructuring and reorganization and hostile takeovers on Wall Street to basically bring efficiency back. And then we went through, you know, the early part of this century with the dot-com uh, revolution and so on with another burst of innovation and then we had the crisis. So I think things go in cycles and I think that this is in a sense a re-emergence of something that we saw, you know, between the first and second world wars in particular you know, in terms of the enormous burst of innovation and, and purpose guiding a lot of these entrepreneurs. So I, I, I do agree that, that to a certain extent it's a re-emergence, but I think it's a re-emergence keeping in mind this, this uh, you know, shareholder value maximization paradigm that we developed in the 80s and the 90s. And so it's, it's kind of an attempt to marry that paradigm with this traditional notion of a higher purpose and how do you work at the intersection of the two? Hmm. You know, it, there's a sense that during the 80s and 90s in this quest for efficiency that you point out that maybe there was a disenfranchisement of employees. People started to think we're just tools. We're just part of the process. We're not really part of the solution. Bob, what's your thinking on that? Well, I think that if you stay with the, this kind of a life cycle notion and what Anjan just said. An entrepreneur comes along, he has a great vision, he's going to save the world. Um, he has a few people in a garage, he gets some resources, he builds it up, and then all of a sudden there's a hundred people and life changes dramatically um, because it's no longer a group of people on a first name basis in a garage anymore. And all of a sudden you have a hierarchy. And as soon as that happens, you know, think about the last time you went to get a driver's license at the Department of Motor Vehicles in any state of the union. <laughs> you know, that was pure hierarchy. You were treated like a widget. And if you didn't have the right document, you didn't get your driver's license. Even if you had 10 substitute documents. Um, we all know what that's like. And in a hierarchical system, the emphasis is on history, what we already know. It's on efficiency, um, it's on compliance, and people retreat. And there's an absolute loss of purpose. So when you get big organizations, it's extremely hard to leave hierarchical slash economic thinking. 
and people behave according to well-honed conventional assumptions like the principal agent model you know people say oh, i've never even heard of that i don't believe in that well they enact it every day here's a problem we think the employees are doing this let's meet let's form a policy for these bad people the only way following economic logic the only thing to do is create more control so we create more control they are very smart people those lowly employees they adapt they find a way to sabotage the system and then you say oh, there it is there's the proof that they're bad people they're sabotaging our system we need to build more control and the cycle goes on and on and on and people can't imagine an alternative because they're trapped in that economic thinking. Yeah, you're speaking to the psychology of the organization, which is fascinating. Um, is there? A, can you explain why behaviors are so important in order to ensure the right purpose-driven outcome? Well, you said the word complexity at the start. We live in the most complex time in human history. And that means that in every organization on this planet right now, there's a premium on adaptation, on learning, adapting, innovating, and prospering. Hierarchical theory never gets you there. Hierarchical theory stomps out innovation and learning and collaboration. High-performance systems do not come out of hierarchical theory. It's always about purpose. Here's the highest purpose that bonds the three of us. What are we willing to sacrifice for that? And it's when we begin to sacrifice and each one of us steps up and says, I'm going to take an initiative here. I'm going to take a risk here. And you and I begin to trust each other and I feel safe, and then I can tell you what I really think, and you tell me what, I, what you really think, all of a sudden we're engaged in collaborative learning. Yeah, I'm just wondering, it's, you're raising something quite interesting, and, and it makes me think of the nature or, or the psyche or, or the ego of the senior executive. Is there a danger that senior executives who are generally more comfortable with hard skills, clear processes, and lots of data might shy away from the employing the softer skills of people management and therefore risk derailing efforts to make purpose a reality? Absolutely. But let's not just blame the CEO. <laughs> Let's recognize that we're talking about me and you and your wife and the neighbor. Every one of us, when we get a disturbance in life and experience doubt, we go into an ego state of analysis and we separate ourselves from the other person who's an object and we fight or we practice flight. Every one of us does this. It's the most natural thing in the world. And CEOs certainly do it too. And everybody under the CEO does it as well. And so we're talking about an incredibly natural process that takes conscious awareness to make the shift. And real leadership is about making these kinds of discoveries and shifting and looking for how to animate the collective good and have people engage in the spontaneous pursuit of that collective good. Hierarchical economic theory conventionally, keyword conventionally, stomps that out. Hmm. 
Is there some subtle irony that in the state of the world today, with all its discord and fear of the other and concern about who's getting ahead and who's falling behind, that there's this surge in interest in corporate purpose or investigating what a new organizational paradigm would look like? Anjan, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, that's an interesting observation. I, I think that this resurgence of interest and purpose, at least within corporations, began soon after the financial crisis because it forced us to fundamentally rethink a lot of uh, sort of basic issues about free market capitalism. And, and as I always say, you know, the, the power of free market capitalism is, is uh, not so visible. <laughs> it works in the background. But I think the dark side of free market capitalism is very visible. And I think we saw some of the dark side of free market capitalism during the financial crisis. So I think it surfaced a need to discuss these issues. But, you know, in many of the case studies that Bob and I use in, in our uh, discussions about purpose, many of those case studies and companies are set well before the financial crisis. So it, what, it's not like these companies began to think about purpose because of the crisis. I think it just brought these examples to light and people began to talk about them. But I think that, you know, it does bring to mind something that Bob and I talk about in, in our book that I would invite Bob to say some more, uh, more about, because my recollection may not be perfect. And that is this uh, speech that Rabbi Sachs, uh, was a British rabbi, gave uh, in Washington, D.C., I believe, where he talked about how the nation of Israel had a society before it had a kingdom, right? And that having a king and having a kingdom uh, puts in place certain social rules of conduct and laws and, you know, how people are supposed to behave, but it doesn't in itself create a society. That to create a society, you need a purpose, right? So that's true of nations. But, you know, that's the analogy, I think, to corporations is you can have a set of rules and employment contracts and put a company together and you'll have a company, but it doesn't create a social bond between that organization and its employees until you articulate and practice a purpose. I, I think you referred to it as a covenant. Bob, could you comment on that? Yeah, it's not a contract. It goes beyond a contract to a covenant. Bob. Yeah, I think you said it well. I think that at the heart of social science is the notion of contract, transactional relationships, whether it's economic, sociology, psychology. Um, and all the assumptions that we make in the social sciences are based in that, in that pattern. <laughs> Community, trust, collaboration, emergence is another pattern. And it's an exceptional pattern. It's not a normal pattern. And because we describe the world as it is, when we take economic, psychological, and sociological theory, and then begin to act as decision makers, we can only create mediocrity because we produce those assumptions of central tendency. My employees are not trustworthy. That's often the case. But if I make that assumption, I design systems that reinforce the fact 
that that's the way they're going to be. And the notion of community coming out of purpose and covenant as opposed to contract uh, takes me into values and takes me into a desirable future. It takes me into leadership. Most people in across the planet and organizations are managers, including CEOs. They're not leaders. They haven't learned to lead yet. So when we were talking earlier about, well, was it the crisis of 2008? Those things were all factors. But this pattern has existed for centuries. People learn to be experts in a given area, often a technical area. They learn to manage. Those were all left brain rational things. And then there's another level of personal development, often around a personal crisis, where they discover a bigger picture. It's then that they move towards purpose, community, covenant. And many people never get there because it's a paradoxical jump. You have to transcend your own assumptions. Hmm. Well, let's talk about leadership a little bit. Uh, you've, you've led us into that. Something dawned on me when reading your book uh, that the skills that allowed conventional leaders to rise from the ranks and lead an organization were in opposition to the demands of a purpose-driven operating model. Can you comment on this? Absolutely. That's the, that's the, that's the great paradox, right? We interviewed one man, brilliant man, impressive man. Uh, he was the CEO of a large food company. He started in finance. He was brilliant in finance. And because he was, he went up that hierarchy through that silo, financial silo. He became the CEO. He was CEO for 11 years. He said, my first year, I almost lost my job. He could not move the company. Why? Because he accepted all the assumptions that made him successful. They were all economic hierarchical assumptions. But when he told the company, we're going to do this, nothing happened. Right? That violates hierarchical theory. But it's also a reflection of how the world works. He, he was on the verge of losing his job and had to rethink everything. And he, he describes this hellish experience he went through where he did a complete turnaround. And then for 10 years, he was a darling of Wall Street. That company just flourished. He describes that change process. And in the end of the interview, he says, I can reduce all my problems to one single word. And the word was expert. I had to be the expert. All my life, I knew that to be true. And it wasn't until I transcended that, that that company started to flourish. Well, that's an enormous paradoxical trans. It's like a religious conversion, right? It's seeing a new world. And in the evolution from manager to leader, that's what's required. So many CEOs are not leaders. Yeah. What, what are the two of you really asking of today's corporate leaders? And, and I'm speaking primarily about those fence sitters, the ones that who haven't committed to a purpose agenda or remain skeptical. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a couple of things. Uh, and it kind of follows the eight-step process that Bob and I developed in our Harvard Business Review article that we discuss in the book. The first thing is to believe that you can transform the organization and your employees 
into purpose-driven people, okay? The biggest hurdle that Bob and I face when we work with companies is convincing the leader of that. Because if they don't believe it, if they're just doing it because it sounds good, you know, it'll be a nice PR initiative, you know, they'll be able to tell everybody, hey, look, you know, we're purpose-driven. Then it's doomed to fail, no matter what Bob and I do, right? So the first thing is the leader of the organization, and this is really a top-down exercise. The leader of the organization has to believe it first, right? And we can present all the evidence that we have. We can share all the anecdotes that, that we have. But in the end, they have to believe it, right? And so you have to take that first step. Then once you believe it, you have to be authentic. I think if those two steps are taken, the rest we can help the organization with. Uh, and authenticity is very interesting to go back and forth with Bob as we were working on these projects as to exactly what we meant by authenticity. And I'd always come at it from the standpoint of its fidelity to the truth, it's stating things without, without deception and so on. And, and that's one part of it. And Bob pointed out that there is another dimension that is every bit as important, and that's passion. Is do I personally, passionately commit, commit to the purpose? So I'm not just standing there in front of my organization saying, okay, this is why we're doing it. They have to see the passion within me. And if those two things, if those two conditions are met, then the pursuit of the purpose becomes authentic. And then the third step, which is something that these leaders are going to encounter on the journey. So you can't, you know, you can only warn them about it, but they have to basically do it when they under, undertake the journey is that once you adopt a purpose that is authentic and you passionately commit to it, you will be tested. There will be decisions you'll have to make where, you know, you in the face of that decision, you'll say, oh, geez, you know, I need to save $50 million and shut down two plants, but this is grossly inconsistent with my purpose, right? And, and those are times when the needs of the moment may actually end up trumping the purpose. And if that happens, you're going to lose the battle because the organization will know you're not authentic. So that's a challenge that the leader has to basically meet as they undertake the journey. So we can only warn them about it. But I think these are the three most important things, uh, in my opinion. Bob, anything to add? Well, let me just elaborate that last one because I think it captures all three. But it's the one people can't comprehend. When you are authentic about having a higher purpose, it becomes the arbiter of every decision. Now, the average manager can't imagine anything that's the arbiter of every decision, right? We were at a consulting firm in Ohio, pretty good-sized firm, and we're in a meeting, and a woman, mid-level mid woman, said, I was in a meeting with my boss this morning, and he said, we're going to do X. And I said to him, no, we're not. And every head in the room snapped and looked at her when she said that. And she said, uh, I told him, here's our purpose. That's not a line where our purpose, we're not going to do it. And the boss said, oh, yeah, you're right. Now, as soon as she finished that sentence, the CEO who was sitting next to me leaned over and he said, do you see what I mean? 
when you have a purpose and it's the arbiter of every decision, then everybody's empowered. Now, that's incomprehensible to most people. When Anjan said it very well a minute ago, there will always be moments of inconvenience. That is, we're losing money. I'll give you a real example. We were, there's a company we're working with, and someone raised the question, well, you know, we're pursuing this purpose, but bad things happen. I had to fire somebody. I still have to do that, even though we have a higher purpose. Now, my question is, did you fire that person differently than you've ever fired anyone before? Because if you didn't, you're not living the purpose. The purpose changes how you fire people. The purpose changes everything. Now, if you don't get that, and it's hard to get that, you're not going to succeed. Well, two things come to mind with these comments. One is, uh, let's take Asia Pacific, for instance, where I think you mentioned your book that a, a purpose isn't invented, it's discovered. And in the case of Asia-based organizations, um, they are expected to fulfill on a headquarter-developed purpose agenda, uh, executed effectively with all its nuances that may be required in Asia. Um, and therefore, how can you truly own something if it's handed to you? That's one question. And the other question is the cultural anomalies that exist. You mentioned holding people and holding your boss, in this case, accountable. Well, in some cultures, it just would be completely against uh, anything which, which would be uh, d determined as, as, as meaningful to challenge the boss publicly or privately. How do you contend with those two issues uh, in, in an Asia context? Let me take the last one and maybe Andrew and take the first one. Because um, the last one is a, one I feel strongly about. <laughs> Everywhere I go, outside the United States, I face this question in one fashion or another. Uh, Quinn, the stuff that you do is American. You can't do it here because I do a lot of weird things. Um, and I nod my head and then I go to that country and I do it and it works every time. And um, I say, look, Americans hate what I do. I ask Americans to tell the truth. I ask them to trust each other. They hate what I do. In every country of the world, we have a handful of people who reach a higher level of thinking and acting around influence. They become masters of influence. And it doesn't matter if you're in Asia or any place else. There's a handful of them there. They, we have stories about them in every tradition. Now, that's what we're talking about. Conventional thinking is like economic thinking. You know, our businesses in all continents are dominated by economic thinking. It's conventional thinking. We're talking about something that's also universal. It's just rare. We don't see it because most people are not that morally developed. It, it feels like a sea change. Bob, I mean, you're asking oh, yeah. organizations yeah. To, to fundamentally shift everything they know and believe in, which has demonstrated results year in, year out, one of the largest and longest uh, periods of economic expansion, and say, hold on, is this really necessary or can we tinker with this a little bit? 
just get it right. I mean, work on PR within the organization, improve the relationship between the boss and employee. We're good. But you all are both advocating a fundamental change in behaviors, in approaches, in belief systems. It's like tearing out the heart and replacing it with something. Um, it's it's asking a lot, is it not? And therefore, I guess it's almost like this 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 um, we dare you to jump, <laughs> and you will discover you can fly. That's what it feels like. How would you now respond that, to that? that? A couple of things. One, we're not tearing out the heart. We're inserting a heart and linking it to a brain, right? It's, a, it's an and, not an or. So that's one thing. The second is, this is not a leap of faith. We're talking about empirical research studies that show that if you meet these criteria, profits go up. We're not saying sacrifice profits. We're saying let's increase profits and let's do it over the long term. Let's talk about that. The economics of purpose. Uh, Anjan, you, you are, uh, have more of an empirical economic background. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how purpose and economics align? Yeah, so there's a lot of research. It's still at an early stage. But as Bob said, uh, the large sample empirical research and the field studies that have been done essentially show that when you have an authentic higher purpose, that's communicated with clarity. So both conditions are important to the organization. Then it does actually elevate profits and, and business performance on many dimensions. So Bob and I have a lot of case studies that we discuss in our book where organizations that went through this transformation ended up doing a lot better after the transformation, not just on profits, but things like market share, stock prices, employee satisfaction, safety records, uh, relationships with their unions, almost every dimension of performance. But there is a paradox, there is a catch. And that is that if as a leader of the organization, you go in with the goal of improving financial performance, and you view purpose as another tool to get there, it doesn't work. <laughs> so if you use purpose simply as a way of boosting performance, it doesn't work, which is a paradox. But when you use, when you embrace purpose authentically for its own sake, without worrying about financial performance, and in, in fact, even making certain short-term financial sacrifices. So in the short term, the pursuit of purpose actually goes against the pursuit of profit, but you're taking a longer term perspective and you're committing to purpose and building that credibility by making the financial sacrifices because they're consistent with the purpose and they're, they're actually not consistent with profit. That's when the organization begins to believe that the purpose is authentic and that's when the transformation in mindsets takes place that's when people's mental maps begin to change. It's, it's a slow process sometimes, right? But there's the rub, and people don't have the patience to wait, right? And they, don't have the they don't have the conviction, right? So faith, you know, it's, it's the fundamental paradox that's embedded in any faith, right? Whether it's a spiritual faith, a religious faith, faith in the power of purpose, is that you believe it without having seen the proof that it's going to work. 
Because if you see the proof that it works and then you do it, there is no faith involved. I mean, I've given you the evidence, right? <laughs> there is no leap of faith. That's why we call it a leap of faith, right? And the paradox is that somehow that leap of faith plays a very important role in convincing the organization that you're serious about it, you're authentic. And that's when people give you what Jerry Anderson at DT Energy calls their discretionary energy. You know, things that they're not contractually obliged to give to the organization, right? They give you that energy, that time. Let's stay on that faith thing for a second. Um, and, and land in sentence. If I hand you, as a CEO, a pile of research that shows that this works, you still don't do it, right? Because this is knowledge. It should replace faith, right? But it's not about faith. It's about fear, right? People are terrified to try new things, to take risks, to step outside their comfort zone. And um, once you commit to a higher purpose, you're committing to move into uncertainty, to live in complexity, to adapt in real time to things, right? To fire people in new ways. And that's terrifying. What if I can't do this, right? What if I can't learn my way? And so it's very interesting. We're working with a company right now. We met and had two extensive day sessions with the top management team. They were spectacularly successful sessions. The CEO was totally committed. Uh, we accomplished so much. And then we followed on with another third day. And on the third day, we brought in Jerry Anderson uh, that Anjan just mentioned. And Jerry told the story of his company and moving it through purpose. And that's always deeply impressive. But here's the kicker. Jerry finished. And during the next two hours, the guy in charge underneath the CEO of the project received phone calls or emails from almost the entire management team saying, oh, now I get it. Now I see how, oh, I understand. I think I can do it. Now, we had spent two long days doing amazing things. And they were nodding their heads. But until they received that story that made sense to them and heard someone telling it with authenticity, they didn't have what it took to take the leap, right? So it's not about knowledge and it's not about faith. It is in a sense. It's about fear. That's what faith does. You, in fear, you step forward, right? And, and the transcendent qualities of a great story. It takes you there. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. You know, I'm going to personalize this a little bit because I find this, and it comes back to that question. You, you took the second of the, of, of the two questions, um, which is how do you implement in uh, a region where you don't have necessarily all, you're not moving all the levers. You only have a few of the controls. Um, when I took over as regional managing director of a Chicago-based company, um, I tried my very best to shift the culture because I felt that the people needed more attention uh, and that it wasn't working. We weren't motivating or mobilizing them because, uh, if, if you will, I think the culture was a little bit bereft. So I, I tried to make that those changes subtly while managing upward, 
uh, and, and controlling, you know, the, the risks associated with not going against, but at least splintering off from what was done at the core. Um, and I discovered all kinds of problems and challenges with that. So if you could say I had a purpose agenda in mind, maybe not defined in these terms, but in other terms, um, and if I struggled with that, what advice would you give to geography or, 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 or regional heads who are trying to implement while being authentic, while not going against the grain of what an organization has established? Steve, let me ask you a question. If you went back there today in the exact same situation, but with your additional life experience, or maybe even this podcast in mind, what would you do differently? Yeah, I think I'd, I would probably spend more time with the owners and with the global CEO and find a way of um, helping explain and articulate what was essential, why, and how it could yield a better result. But again, I'm falling into that same trap of his language, not mine, because he's looking for results and I'm looking for a shift in culture. So back to you, what would you suggest? Two quick stories. One, uh, we work with a Fortune 25 company that's very brutal. And when we, we bring their people in, and the people are very cynical on Monday. Um, we introduce a number of things about purpose and positive leadership, and they get very caught up in that. They begin to believe in that. And then we open doors for people to tell the truth, which is unusual. And inevitably, someone, after two days of why this can't happen in this company, in the CEO and his terrible stance, someone says, my unit's like that. And I say, what? And I don't let them whisper anymore, and I pull them up there. And I make them describe their unit. Like one of them said recently, well, I took over my unit because it was 80% behind plan. Nobody wanted it, but I took it over. And I, I didn't know these, this language you're teaching me, but I knew these principles. I was practicing them. And my unit's on fire. We're 80% ahead of plan now. But here's the thing, the person said. When I get up out of bed in the morning, I don't walk to work. I run to work. I love my unit, right? And then said this sentence, I don't know why any would lead any other way, All right? The way we're leading, most of us, is a terribly draining, terrible experience. Why would we do it any other way than this way? Now, that one person in the middle of a hierarchy like the one you describe cracked the code, right? He cracked the code. There's no difference between that mid-level regional person cracking the code or the CEO I described who was failing for a year cracking the code. But when you crack the code, you become a positive deviant. You do things other regional managers aren't doing. So my failure was hedging. Don't hedge. All in. Uh, I, that's step one. <laughs> Yeah. I would like to add something to what Bob said, which is that a very important step in that eight step process is what we call connecting the people to the organization. So it's not enough for the CEO at the top to articulate a higher purpose for the organization because it means that same higher purpose means different things to different people at different levels of the organization, right? 
because what I'm doing in the organization uh, may not, to me at least, seem obviously connected to the purpose that the CEO has articulated, right? Because that purpose statement is going to be pretty general, and it may even sound generic, and mothered at apple pie kind of stuff like, okay, this sounds really good, but what does it mean for me? And you can't assume that people are going to figure it out. They don't. And in fact, what Bob was describing, one of the companies we're working with right now, you know, we're going to take about, you know, we've dealt with the top 15 in the organization. Now we're going to, you know, over the next couple of months, take about 250 people below them at two, two levels in the organization, below the executive committee, through this process of how do you connect? Now that we have an organizational higher purpose, how do we connect you? And how do we help you to create your own statement of purpose for the job that you're doing, right? How is the job that I do connected with the higher purpose of the organization? That's a very important step. And, and you cannot assume that people will know how to do it because it actually takes time and reflection and effort to, to do that. Let me give you an Asian example of what he just said. <laughs> we have... Uh, an associate who went through all of our training and he was Japanese and he was on fire about it and he worked in China and he was in a in the auto industry and he they had a new Chinese plant manager come in and he shared all of this learning with the plant manager and the plant manager was more enthusiastic than he was now their challenge was to reduce the weight of a wheel that they produced by an ounce. If they could do that, it would have profound implications across the world. Uh, doing that was incredibly difficult. And he tried to inspire the workers, and they tried a higher purpose. Pur workers didn't respond. They tried another version. And the Japanese guy, who was very enthusiastic, felt like quitting. And the Chinese guy said, no, we have to keep working. He went to some of his engineers and he said, I want you to compute how much the smog, the fog in Beijing would be reduced if we made, were successful in this. The guy came back and said, 30 days. So they went back and they told the first line employees in this plant that they would reduce the smog by 30 days in Beijing if they could pull this off. They went home and started telling their neighbors, I'm working on reducing the smog in Beijing. The plant caught fire, right? It absolutely caught. They were successful, they pulled it off, right? That's what Anjan's talking about. The average manager would never engage in the work that that man engaged in to pull that off. Now that's an Asian story, it's not an American story. Right, right. But it's personalizing it. It's taking that kind of organizational mission and now boiling it down to the idea that I can actually, in my small singular capacity, make a difference. And it means, it means I, as a manager, understand what you really want, who you really are, right? Brilliant example. Um, li listen, I think in your book you mentioned that uh, the corporate purpose mission is a journey and not a destination. If anything, this uh, conversation has proved that to be true. Uh, brilliant work. Thank you for all your efforts, and it's been an absolute pleasure.
That was my conversation with Bob Quinn and Anjan Thakkar, authors of the book The Economics of Higher Purpose. If the discussion revealed one thing, it's that corporate purpose is no sideshow. It's a brave new world with two kinds of future corporate leaders, those that make the jump and those that don't. What it comes down to is the will to change and the tenacity to do it. There's no simple solution in pursuit of a corporate purpose agenda, says Quinn and Thakkar. It takes moxie. In fact, they explicitly point out the paradox of purpose. If an organization pursues purpose with the expressed intent of growing profits, the effort will likely fail. Why? Because employees and partners will interpret this as just one more effort by the company to extract some advantage without offering anything in return. To succeed, corporate leaders will need to slough off the kind of command and control operating tactics that help them rise within the ranks and instead see new levels of control to employees who are prepared to tie their success to that of the company. There's nothing like a crisis to elicit this kind of change, says Bob. And for many, the global pandemic is just what some organizations need to fundamentally reevaluate how they operate, engage with customers, treat their employees, and steward the environment. It speaks to the soft skills that all too often are ignored, particularly in times of crisis. Instinctively, companies contract, shave costs, fire people, and renege on contracts in order to survive. On the face of it, this makes sense. The evidence, however, suggests something quite different. People are a company's greatest asset. Yet more often than not, they are seen as a means to a financial end. Reframing the traditional employer-employee contract, say the authors, can reboot a relationship that's one-dimensional and based almost entirely on financial incentives. People seek purpose. Find out what motivates people, empower them, and then sit back and watch what happens. Dan Pink, author of the best-selling book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, shows evidence that seasoned professionals find greater motivation in the less tangible aspects of a job and gravitate increasingly towards opportunities for autonomy, mastery, and purpose as they move up the corporate ladder. How do we miss this, and why then, despite the evidence, do companies continue to think that financial incentives are the be-all to end-all? Perhaps it's time to reevaluate. Corporate leaders who've risen to the top got there by making their companies richer or more successful. Maybe it's time for a new leader, one that sees the organization as a vehicle for positive change. No one is suggesting that well-honed sales, finance, and operating skills are no longer important, but layer on top the behavioral skills that elicit the best in people, and you might just turn the tide. It's time, says Quinn and Thakur, to transform a culture of self-interest into a culture of collaboration. How hard is it? Well, that's a relative question. It brings to mind a story once told by the mythologist Joseph Campbell. He recounted a bit of advice given to a young Native American at the time of his initiation. The elder turned to the young initiate and said, As you go the way of life, you will see a great chasm. Jump. It's not as wide as you think. Advice to live and die by as we rush to the brink of corporate purpose. That's all for this episode. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more about the Corporate Purpose Quest and its implications for Asia, let me know. Leave a message by visiting Inside Asia on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We want to know what you think. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.